Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. Love, love, love this company. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode. But now, on with the show. We're talking about a fundamental slowdown, not just because the economic growth model has come to an end, but because Beijing is stepping in, trying to take control of it, trying to uh, deflate the property bubble, trying to de-risk the financial system and make sure they are making structural changes so that there will not be a bigger problem that ends up really hurting the party down the road. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined by Leland Miller. He's the founder of the China Beige Book. Leland, welcome to On the Margin. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks very much. Um, you know, usually we just get right into it, but you have such an interesting kind of backstory, entrepreneurial backstory. Uh, I have a soft spot in my heart for those. Uh, mm. And you were just telling me on the pre-call that you ran away from a life of uh, lawyering and investment banking, which I think is going to resonate with the audience here. So could you just give us like a little bit of a sense of your history and how you kind of founded China Beige Book? I started doing China in high school, um, you know, working on Capitol Hill with internships starting when I was 15, was very interested in the policy world, uh, but got sucked in, you know, and did that through college and started taking Mandarin when during the early days it was offered, uh, but got sucked into the uh, where am I going for grad school and, 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 and law school was always was always calling me, I thought. Uh, so I did grad school, I did college, then I did uh, I did grad school at, at, at Oxford to study Chinese history. And then I, I dove into the law school and then law firm life. And I was doing uh, investment, I was doing capital markets, investment deals uh, out of New York and Hong Kong, uh, and getting work to the bone and uh, getting crushed uh, and dreaming of the life that I was not yet living doing this policy stuff that I had started doing early on. And I, what am I doing? And for a while I kept up trying to have one foot in the door and I was doing a lot of writing on the side and I was doing some advising on the side with some, you know, some some hedge funds and others, and and uh, finally got to the point where I was in a meeting with someone, and uh, and they were asking me these these pointless questions. It was a hedge fund of about about, uh, about Chinese data, and I and I just said, look, these are the wrong questions. Who cares? And the guy looked at me very angrily and said, well, what are the right questions? Why don't you do something better? And I'm like, ooh, uh, that that didn't go very well. But he has a very good point. So I went home and I brainstormed it. And, you know, within the next 18 months, the idea for China Beige Book was moving forward. And what I wanted to do was basically create a, a, a new type of uh, a new type of, 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 of data collection, a new type of advisory so that we were actually getting the right type of data out of the Chinese economy. And. Uh, this took a while, and it, you know, it, it, we started back in 2010, so we've been going for over a decade now. But uh, you know, this was this was a lot of fun because I, I spent all those nights in corporate in, in a corporate universe, just daydreaming. Like I wish I was doing policy. Why can't I have this grand idea? And one day, uh, a client yelled at me and gave me that great idea, and I ran with it. Walk me through, uh, you know, kind of China Beige Book in the beginning. You know what you were doing. We were talking a little bit again on the pre-call about this, about kind of quarterly surveys. Walk me through what it is today and what some of the data that you're producing, um, or I guess digging up around the Chinese economy looks like. Sure. Uh, well, you know, at the beginning, everyone told us we couldn't do it. I mean, everyone, uh, because they said, "Look, China is a black box. It's a communist economy. If you go over there, they're going to kill you, or they're going to, or they're going to, you know, they're not going to let you release the data or something." And, and 
I said, ah, let's let let's test this. I mean, people are being lazy. Let's test this. Uh, it, it 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 sounds risky, but you know, there was what I think people to understand is there was a there was a need. There was a real need for investors, for yeah. foreign corporations, uh, for financial firms to have a, a, an independent view into what's happening in China. Chinese official data, in case anyone doesn't know, is a political set of numbers. You know, they have to put out numbers that make the party look good. Even the party people will say behind closed doors that these numbers are ridiculous. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, there was always this need to, to have something better. And, um, you know, when we first started, there was, you know, we thought we were being incredibly ambitious by doing a quarterly survey of economic conditions in China, focusing on uh, corporates. Uh, we were looking at the, the corporate side and we were surveying 1200 firms at the very beginning and we thought it was this 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 incredible thing no you know no one thought we could do even that you know fast forward over a decade later and we're surveying tens of thousands of firms a year we're releasing the data not just monthly but and not just weekly which we started doing a few years ago but actually daily so we can actually collect the data uh, release it in real time as we're surveying it uh, and uh, it's it's really this real time picture of the entire Chinese economy, and and the data we collect, just so it's very clear, has absolutely nothing to do with government data. It is a hundred percent data that we collect our own from our survey network, uh, and 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 we do this by surveying the entire surveying the entire economy. You know, we we look at all the key sectors, thirty seven discrete subsectors. Uh, we track all the geographic regions in China. We, we track private versus state dynamics. We track large firm versus small firm dynamics. All the things that are potential holes in other tracking of the economy. You know, someone tracks only big cities. Some, some track the peripheries versus the coast. And, and some track only certain sectors. We wanted everything. And we weren't going to put out one number that uh, that uh, was the, the single number of China, like the, the GDP growth number or the PMI number. People think, oh, that's the number for China. No, what we wanted to do is create a, a, a suite, a, a series of metrics that, that, that basically told the story of all the different Chinas. Uh, and then we went beyond growth and we started tracking the jobs market, which didn't have any, any type of uh, um, uh, independent assessment. We track inflation. We track the credit environment. And, and that's actually the most interesting thing we do because we, we track who's accessing capital. How much are they paying for capital? Um, are they tr are they borrowing in the traditional banking system? Are they in shadow finance? The lens the lens to look at the economy that basically tells the most fulsome story is credit, because you can see what government policy is, what, what the government's allowing, what the government's pushing. You also see what corporates want. Are corporates excited about investment and hiring? Um, are they are they running scared? Uh, and so you have a really uh, robust three dimensional picture, but it's from the bottom up. It's not a number that's sort of announced from the top down. And, and that's, that's basically what China Facebook is now. Yeah. And one of the things I, I think is the most interesting about your business, uh, Leland, for such a such an essential service that you're providing, you have very few competitors. And I think a lot of this proprietary data that you've been able to gather has led to some super, super unique insights. So one idea that I've heard you talk about that I really want to dig in on here is the, is the current growth model, the economic growth model of China coming to an end. And I know you've talked about kind of China being on the verge of this big paradigm shift. So can you just describe for the listeners from a high level, what are you talking about when you say that? Well, China has been uh, an economy that has grown at 
a, a s- s- remarkable pace for years and years and years. Um, now, granted, it started out as, as close to nothing, you know, 30 years ago, but it keeps growing. It's this incredible success story, su- successful growth story. But a lot of it was uh, on the back of w- reckless credit expansion, but the last the last decade specifically. Uh, so a lot of what was happening was that the government would set growth targets, and then it would do everything it needed to do in order to hit those growth targets. Uh, so if it needed to uh, produce a lot of, you know, famously there's ghost cities and other things. It's a little bit of a, uh, you know, a, a little bit of a hyperbole in terms of how much how, how much of the system that was. But yeah, it would build, you want to hit an 8% growth target, you want to hit a 12% growth target, you just keep building until you hit the target. Because remember, GDP growth, which which has this extremely important role in Chinese economic thinking, is about aggregate growth, not productive growth. So we used to always joke tongue-in-cheek that if China wanted to hit an 8% growth number, all they would have to do is build a single bridge, tear it down, build the same bridge again, tear it down, build it again, tear it down, and keep going until they hit 8% GDP. Because all you're really doing is adding this stuff up. Now, what's happening if you do that is none of the growth is productive. It's all going to be uh, non-productive uses of, of capital. You're going to have a lot of bad debt, and that's what the Chinese system is essentially built into. And what's interesting now is not that China's slowing down, because I think people got the memo about this years ago. Uh, we had a little bit of a hard time convincing people the extent of the slowdown they were going to see when we first started out back in you know, 2010, 11, 12. Now people, they get it. Everyone understands that China's slowing down. But what they don't understand, the more recent dynamic, is that the party is going to slow the economy down as well. Um, so what's what's so interesting right now is that it's not just about the system overloading and the economic growth model uh, coming to an end, which is absolutely true, but it's the party's recognition that the growth model now presents a potential vulnerability to party rule going forward. And so what what Xi Jinping and what the Beijing leadership wants to do right now is act before it's too late. And what they have done, which was evident on our data, but shocking to China watchers who are used to this very staid growth playbook that they had been used to for two decades, was de-risk the system, de-risk the financial system, bring credit expansion down dramatically, which we saw throughout 2021 in our data uh, and official data, uh, and de-risk the property sector. Property is so important because if you want to talk about how they would juice growth in order to hit these targets, well, they would just open the spigots, provide all this money to property firms. People were buying more. They were building more, um, and, and that would get growth up. But they decided, look, this is, this is really bad. Um, you know, we are, we are funding companies that are essentially zombies if they didn't have uh, eternal access to credit. So we're going to pull that back. We're going to pull general financial conditions back. We're going to try to get control of this beast. Uh, what this is doing is this is going to slow down China's growth significantly in the coming years. Um, you know, if you talk to a, you look, you read a Wall Street research pamphlet about this, they'll talk about little little baby movements in the GDP growth in 20, 2025, 2026, whatever it might be. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a fundamental slowdown. Uh, you know, within the next decade to to very low, very low single digits. Uh, and, and this will be not just because the economic growth model has come to an end, but because Beijing is stepping in, trying to take control of it, trying to uh, deflate the property bubble, trying to de-risk the financial system and make sure they are making structural 
at least sufficient structural changes so that there will not be a bigger problem that ends up really hurting the party down the road. Because China has had this very specific idea of what growth means for them, it's actually led to the funding of a whole bunch of different unproductive assets, um, right, in, in the economy. And they've done that basically through credit, right, debt and borrowing. And now the CCP is kind of looking at this gigantic house of cards, potentially, and saying, oh, my God, if this were to ever unravel, this would challenge our legitimacy and our authority. So they're kind of clamping down, right, and trying to get ahead of it and deflate those bubbles. Is that, is that about the right way to look at it? Yeah, no, it's the right thing. And, and, and it's important to stress, too, that this is not just a China problem. I mean, we're seeing this, and I think your listeners are all probably saying, oh, we, 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 we know. Um, but this is a problem. This is a global problem, right? You know, you have this issue in the United States. You certainly have it in Japan. You have it in Europe. Everyone has been printing too much. Everyone has been, has been too aggressive. Uh, but I think the difference between the Chinese approach and everyone else right now is that the, the Chinese have a one-party system. And in a democracy, you can just toss out toss out the current crowd, bring in a new one, blame the new one, toss them out, bring another one. You can't do that in China. And if you did, that would be the end of the Chinese Communist Party rule. So they are far more sensitive to the possibility that we could be hitting an inflection point at some point in the near nearer future than people expect. Because for for American politicians, most of them say, ah, well, you know, whatever, I would keep going while the go- going's good. And, 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 and uh, you know, if, if, if it's my turn to get tossed out, then so be it. That's a system. That is not the way the Chinese Communist Party thinks. So they are becoming far more aggressive on what they see as a problem in their nearer term rather than a distant future. And I love this answer, too, because it helps explain some of the recent crackdowns that we've seen over 2021, right, on the education sectors and the tech sectors in uh, China. And obviously, I want to get into Evergrande and the property sector as well. I guess from a high level, how successful do you think that, you know, the CCP, you know, the central bank, the PBOC as well, is going to be at containing some of this financial fallout, right? There's, um, and maybe in your answer, if you could touch on, you know, for some of our American listeners, like how the, this like centrally planned economy kind of works? Like what are some of the pros and cons of that? And ultimately, how successful do you think they can really be in containing uh, this problem that they've created for themselves? Yeah, from a financial contagion risk, they are going to be very, very successful because that's what the system is premised on controlling. Yeah, I, I talk to people who, who aren't familiar with the Chinese system. And this was a lot of hedge funds too, who thought, hey, we saw the Lehman collapse. We see things, we saw things happen in the US and Europe and and, and there's going to be a China collapse. That's not how it works for, for one simple reason. China has a non-commercial financial system. It is very different from the West. It has a non-commercial financial system. And what that means is uh, if they have problems along the way, uh, the government owns or controls all the counterparties in the economy. So if they have a, 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 a problem, there's not going to be a liquidity freeze-up. There's not the same counterparty risk because the government can order borrowers to borrow, sellers to sell, suppliers to supply. Uh, it can order commerce to continue, and it can put huge chunks of capital from one side of the economy and just swoosh it like a wave into other sides to plug the holes in, in the boat. So in terms of an acute crisis, a, a financial contagion, a Lehman moment, that's not likely at all. As a matter of fact, it's near impossible in China for the simple fact that the Chinese government has the tools to be able to contain this. Now, the downside for that is that you're constantly <clears throat> pushing uh, good money after bad. You're constantly taking you know, healthy companies and having them bankroll 
bankrupt companies, and this is happening not on a you know a, a company by company basis or a sector by sector basis, but on an economy wide basis. So you're basically creating a toxic system by never allowing companies to die, backstopping everything with the government, and and rest assured, the Beijing policymakers know that Xi Jinping knows this, and this is why they are moving so actively to change some of the dynamics that we've gotten used to for 20 years. 2021 was just a different year than anything we've ever seen. And, and market analysts were very slow to pick up on it. One, because they didn't have data. They were just relying on, on policy announcements and other things. And, but two, they had been lulled into this complacency that the Chinese are economic magicians, that, that Chinese economic policymakers can just order a certain GDP number, a certain growth number, <laughs> and just continue that on into the future forever. And that's not true. There, there is a limit to all this stuff. There's, we don't know when that limit is. But it's a scary enough situation for the party that they are actively moving to control it because they don't want to test out when that limit is because that limit would mean the end of the party control. So you can see that this, this is not just happening because the Chinese economy is deteriorating from within. It's happening because there's a recognition by the leadership that the system is, is dying, the system is problematic, and they need to move now before the problems spiral in a way that they can't control them. What about the bottom-up story? One thing I wanted to get your perspective on is the idea of demographics in China, right? So one-child policy got instituted back in, I think, 1980, right, or something like that. That was recently disbanded by Xi. Uh, but I understand it's done uh, quite a bit of damage, actually, to their demographics overall. Can you just walk us through what the story is around the demographics of China, why that's such an important story to understand? Number one issue is not even growth, it's demographics, as you mentioned. Uh, the one-child policy has created an enormous problem for China. Uh, so basically, you know, you have a generational inverse pyramid where you're gonna have, uh, first of all, you have, you have a declining population, which is gonna be problematic for certain things. Uh, secondly, you're going to have uh, an inverse pyramid structure where you have sort of one kid supporting two parents, supporting four grandparents and other things. Very, very difficult uh, in order to incentivize people to spend more when they're trying to save their, their, their money to be able to support the, 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 you know, the, all, all, the, all the family members above them and they don't have brothers or sisters to help out. Um, but the but the idea of, of, of the demographics I don't think is taken seriously enough. You also have a massive uh, male female disparity, uh, which is there because you had the one child policy result in a lot of female infanticide for years. So you had lots and lots of males, and now you have a, a male too many males, not enough females, or at least not enough females, uh, and for, for for there to be gender gender balance there, and um, that's going to have effect on the birth rate. So. There are, there are these really substantial headwinds that, that China will be dealing with. In the short term, some of these may actually be salutary, some of these trends. So for instance, when you are working about restructuring and you have to fire a bunch of people and you have to sort of end these big, low-tech manufacturing jobs and some of these commodity sector jobs, you want to shift people into the service sector or something else, the fact that the workforce is dwindling makes your job easier because there will be less unemployment and leading to less potential social instability. So some of these trends in the near term may actually be helpful. Uh, but in terms of the medium and long term, there are very, very serious trends and the, uh, uh, that, are, that are headwinds against, against the, the rise of China, the rise of, of, of uh, you know, the continued growth of the economy at a fast pace. 
And uh, some of them, you know, they're working now to try to undo some of the damage they did. But a lot of these, a lot of these problems, it's too late. Uh, you know, you're, you're going to, they're going to be hit, they're going to be hit, hit with them within the next five to 10 years. And it's going to get worse going from there. Mm. Can you walk us through like some specifics around numbers here? I don't know if you, like, I was listening to an episode that Peter Zihan did, uh, you know, geopolitical strategist. He was kind of, uh, you know, throwing out some some pretty crazy numbers like China. There was an estimate that China's population was actually going to decrease by half by the year 2100. Um, that, you know, I, I didn't actually dig into how accurate that is, but I, I'm curious if you have a sense of like, what are some of, what's kind of the scale of the problem here? Like, what are we talking about in terms of a decrease of, of working population? I had an interesting conversation with Neil Howe about this, you know, a few weeks back. Um, I don't have the exact numbers. I, I think it's it's more helpful for me rather than to spout something that you guys have to edit out as a ridiculously wrong number. Uh, so to, to just talk about general general trends here and and what even the latest announcements have been that the the, the trends were too optimistic. That po China's population is is near a peak at this point. Um, it'll be going down, and I, the level I don't know. But you know this is something you're seeing all around the world. You know, you look at what Japan's population; they've got a major problem. Russia, even before the invasion, major problem. U.S. Uh, Europe, major problem. You know, U.S., which is which is not in good shape, is actually the least, you know, the least problematic of all of them, but not in great shape. And it's it's ironic to to look at the political discourse right now, which both in the U.S. and abroad is about, uh, you know, pushing away immigration. Ten years from now, the world is going to be in a very aggressive battle to encourage immigration. And it's not just going to be high-level immigration, which everyone should want all the time, including now. It's going to be people coming in, doing, doing, doing normal work. And so, you know, China, China is going to have this challenge. Uh, here's the difference, though. The U.S. system is based on the idea, maybe not now, maybe not every month, but the idea that you bring in people, you bring in talent, and they become part of the melting pot. You have a major problem around the world with countries, uh, China, Japan, France, others. They, they're not willing to bring in people from around the world and just shove them into their national polity and say, you know, you are one of us. It's, it's a much more difficult problem. You have this really, really tough situation in, in China. I'm not sure what could possibly uh, get them to, to change their mind on immigration. And, and, and so the U.S. has a backdoor out of this once, once, once they get their, their act together. It's not clear at all what China is going to do about this because immigration has never been a possibility. It's it's not it, it's it's not part of the national conversation. It's not part of the party's conversation. So, this this is going to get worse um, long before it gets better. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. I talk to a lot of fast-growing crypto-native funds, crypto banks, exchanges, and the like, and they all tell me they have the same two problems. One, their treasury management setup sucks. They've got analysts wasting time and money on manual transactions. Two, they are not happy with their current security setup. They're sharing passwords, they're sending test transactions, and they're worried that their funds might be at risk. Fireblocks is a platform that solves all of that for you. They're a one-stop shop portal, which automatically plugs into exchanges, trading venues, etc. They source deep liquidity and solve everything from day-to-day -day crypto transactions all the way down to complex DeFi strategy. And the best thing about Fireblocks is that they offer scalable solutions with industry-leading technology. Doesn't matter if you're a two-person crypto fund or a 2,000-person crypto exchange, these guys have you covered. 
And the last thing that I'll say about this company is that I have known them for years. They are a high integrity team. They ship product like no other. I would trust them with my own funds. So click the link at the bottom of this page and tell them that I sent you. Very, very important that you click the link at the bottom here. Otherwise, they're not going to know that I sent you. And then how am I going to get credit? So help a brother out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell them I sent you. There's a lot of focus, rightly so, right, on the Ukraine-Russia conflict. For me, I've been kind of, I found myself thinking a lot about China here, right? And, you know, looking at this from a layperson with no special information, I was kind of waiting to see what Xi was going to do, right, when this conflict broke out. Was he going to come out on Putin's and Russia's side here? And it doesn't really look, again, from my outsider's perspective, that he has done that. I'd be curious to get your perspective on that. And then I'd love to understand, just in terms of some of the sanctions that are being levied on Russia right now, what the trade relationship between China and Russia, you know, what the impact is there. So I can never just ask one question. I always pile them on. Uh, one, yeah, that, one that, after that was the other. a lot. That was a lot. <laughs> that was a lot. Let's, let's deconstruct this. So, yeah. um, as with all things China, look at what they do, not what they say. Um, I'm always amused by all the analysts out there who spend all this time time to de deconstruct Chinese policy statements. And say, well, they seem to say this here, but they look, this is diploblather. It is meaningless nonsense. It is a way of smoothing out contradictions that cannot be smoothed out uh, substantively. So forget what they're actually saying. Uh, there's very few clues in what they're saying from day to day. And look at what they're doing. Here's what they're doing. They are supporting Russia um, uh, rhetorically, and they will be willing, at least once the violence, the, the more violent parts of this conflict ebb um, in, you know, in, the, in the coming days or weeks, hopefully, um, to play around in gray areas, to do things that are uh, maybe not outwardly illegal, but disfavored, like buying all Russian community. I mean, they're going to be in there buying bargain basement oil and, you know, relatively speaking, oil, gas, wheat, other agricultural commodities from Russia. Most most countries around the uh, the world won't deal with them. China will just jump in and 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 and, and try to deal with that. They'll provide yuan to the through through. There's a, the various ways of doing this. They'll provide yuan credit to Russian uh, businesses and 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 the Russian economy in order to buy Chinese goods. So they'll step in there and they will. Uh, push back on certain sanctions and they will try to get around certain banking sanctions that they think are light and that they can rhetorically justify as being uh, nonsensical. However, uh, there is a wall of sanctions that are going around Russia right now, the likes of which the world has never seen. Uh, I was quite critical about the first wave of sanctions because there wasn't a lot there. Uh, there is now a lot there. And most people are talking about SWIFT sanctions, which have to do with, uh, you know, inter-country transfers and, and central bank sanctions, to, so barring transactions to, for with, their, with their Forex reserves. Uh, but really, there's an even bigger deal, or at least a deal uh, on the same level as these others, which is, which is something, a uh, trade tool called the, the foreign direct product rule. And what the U.S. has essentially done, and this was a Trump-era tool that was used in order to uh, almost put Huawei out of business, uh, very strong <clears throat> sanctioning tool, and it is being used to ring-fence the Russian economy. And what this rule does is say to anyone in the world using any, selling any goods that have U.S. intellectual property in them, you cannot sell to the following sanctioned uh, entities. You can't sell to Russia right now, or else you yourself will be subject 
to secondary sanctions, and we will put you out of business and anyone you transact with out of business. So for all the talk about how China is not going to listen to the international community, their key companies are in the crosshairs if they do anything crosswise. Uh, will they test Biden at some point? Maybe. I think it's going to be about what signals uh, and, and what wherewithal they think the, the Biden administration has on enforcing these. Uh, but I think the likelihood is you see China very, very, very careful about putting themselves in the target of any of these massive sanctions, which could have a massive cascade effect to, to their key their key tech companies to the economy at large. So, you know, you'll read headlines about Chinese noncompliance with sanctions, but where it really counts, you're going to see Chinese compliance with sanctions. Now, here, let me ask, oh, let me actually move to the second part, because you asked about the trade policy and yeah. stuff too. Let me just add one extra point on that before, before we move on. There will be a price that the Chinese ask for this adherence. And this is one of the things we've been speaking to our clients mm. a lot about. Uh, you know, you, the, the, the phase one trade, U.S.-China trade deal ended at the end of 2021. There has been no announcement about what's next. There has been no follow-up deal. Do the, do the Chinese, are they still obligated to buy all these things? Are there, is there a future of tariff pullbacks, what, what, what have you? They will be announcing something in the not-too-distant future. But what the Chinese pressure is right now is be nicer to us. We are being asked to, ad to adhere to all these big, bad sanctions. These are painful for us. We'll do it, but you better be nice to us. So there's a real dance within the White House right now about how they want to or, 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 or will resist dulling down this, uh, this 301 investigation they have planned uh, into Chinese misbehavior. You know, will they soften the blow? There's a real, there's a real debate going on. Do you... Do you recruit China to be your ally in crushing Russia and try to separate the two? Or do you look longer term and say, look, we're going to put pressure on Russia, but we're not going to ease up our push on China because they're the true long-term, medium-term, even short-term economic and national security threat to the United States and to the West. And so we need to keep the focus on them. That's the battle that's playing out right now in D.C. So let me ask you just one last question on Russia and China before we move on. Do you see them as being ideologically joined, I suppose, and a, a combined threat, I suppose, to U.S. hegemony? I mean, I think from my perspective, Russia and China seem uneasy allies at best, but it could, and the perceptions from the outside, it's kind of like an enemy of my enemy is my friend type situation. So what are your kind of thoughts high level on the relationship between Russia and China? Do you see them being a combined threat to U.S. power? I agree exactly with what you just said. Um, look, the enemy of my enemy is, is, is why this so-called alliance has been formed. Uh, there is no question that uh, the Russians and Chinese have things they can do together to make life difficult for the United States and others. I mean, we're seeing that play out right now. Um, they're also both scared that they are going to be labeled pariahs in a world dominated by the U.S., geopolitically, by a U.S. dollar system, by U.S. control over international organizations, uh, and, and, and they're trying to push back through some sort of coordinated approach, a quasi-coordinated approach. That said, there is no ideological uh, cohesion between the two. Uh, they don't even really like each other outside of some statements between Xi and, 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 and Putin about being best friends, which we heard, we heard recently. Um, the reality is that 
they have one of the largest land borders in the world. I think it's the sixth largest land border between China and Russia in the entire world. Uh, what has been happening for many, many years is that Chinese commerce and others has just been creeping, Chinese citizens creeping over this Russian border and has been sinicizing parts of the Russian Far East. The Russians are scared to death the Chinese are going to move on them, not with giant takes, but they're just going to swallow up chunks of the Russian Far East. This has been a long time Russian fear. So the idea that Russia is running into the arms of the Chinese right now is happening in a very immediate sense in terms of asking China to bail them out and provide yuan and other things. But what it's essentially going to do is create a vassal state of Russia if they continue. Uh, they have been more scared of the Chinese threat than this sort of amorphous U.S. threat for a long time. So this is not a great game plan for Putin. And I think most Russians understand that this is a really, really problematic approach to put too much marbles, too much eggs in the Chinese basket. Uh, now, for China, who cares? I mean, they're not they're not worried about Russia coming over the borders. Uh, if 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 the, the more leverage they have over Putin, the better deals they'll get on oil and gas, which they desperately need. So there's a lot of upside in this for China. Uh, there's not a lot of upside in this for Russia, except that Russia is now being driven into a corner and feels like it has no option. So this is some really stupid Russian strategy. Uh, it's probably some very clever Chinese strategy. But look, this is a marriage of convenience. And when there's no convenience or there's no upside, then then you'll stop seeing coordination between the two. What is your view just in general on globalization, the state of globalization today? And then if we kind of bring that into markets, how that might translate into some market forces? Because what it kind of seems like is, okay, we've built over the course of the last, you know, 30 or 40 years, it's been the decade, uh, past couple of decades of globalization. We have all these trade ties, economic in- shared economic interests, et cetera. From a geopolitical standpoint, Things look more uneasy than they have in the past. I think COVID was a big wake-up call to say, oh my gosh, we can't even produce masks in the United States. We're completely dependent on China. And people are thinking about reshoring production and supply chains, et cetera. Do, do you agree with that in general, that we might have seen peak globalization? And B, so what, what are the impacts on, on markets, right? How should investors be looking at that? We may have seen peak globalization, but that doesn't mean we're necessarily in a deglobalizing world. So you're going to see a recognition of problems in having China, you know, from the U.S. side, from having China being able to cut off certain supply chains. And, and, and some of these may be rare earth metals and some of it may be, uh, you know, masks for PPE masks and some of it may be uh, some, you know, something else, uh, polysilicon or something else. Uh, there is definitely a recognition that having uh, – or another thing, pharmaceutical ingredients. You know, so you, you have all these issues that people are weighing in saying, are we really playing it smart by allowing the Chinese or anyone else to have a, uh, you know, a lever to cut off supplies in the United States? I think the answer is there are certain things in which they rise to the, to the, to the level of national security threat that they will need to look very closely at not making sure that China cannot do this. And in, and in those particular supply chains, you have to have some level of deglobalization. 
Uh, but, you know, it, it, it's also, let me push back from the other direction, because it has been this very sexy thesis for a couple of years to say the whole world is deglobalizing, we're going to break up into regional blocks or whatever it might have. Uh, we're not mostly seeing that. You know, I had a very interesting uh, conversation with some economists who would, who would look closer into, into this issue, and they said, you know, we were all saying this is happening, and we looked in the data, and it's not really happening yet. So, yes, you have the potential of the world breaking up. Uh, but it's not really deglobalization. What it, what's really happening is, is, is it's, 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 uh, it's bifurcating on the tech side. So if you look what's happening in 5G, uh, 5G communications, um, the U.S. side really, you, you ask somebody what 5G was a few years ago and whether the Chinese were, 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 were a problem here, and most people didn't know what you were talking about. You know, under Trump, there was much more of a recognition because of the highlighting of this Made in China 2025 program, where where it was it became sort of dinner table conversation that the Chinese wanted to and had announced their their intention to dominate advanced technology, the fifth industrial revolution going forward, and so they wanted to dominate the next global communications. Huawei was their big, you know, was their was was their was their big champion for for five G communications, um, and what the what what they did you know, from a foreign policy standpoint is they would go to to, to countries that that wanted, uh, you know, they wanted Chinese Chinese uh, favors for something and say, look, part of this is you take Huawei's system, you put the Chinese system in place. And we'll subsidize the hell out of it for you. It'll be cheaper than anything. It's great technology. And you're going to have Chinese telecommunications running your networks. And then finally, people in the West woke up and said, well, wait a second. This is not a good idea to have the Chinese outfitting the world tele telecommunications infrastructure. We need to push back on that. So down the line, eventually, this led to some very severe sanctions on Huawei and some recognition that you had to push back on this expansion of, of Chinese 5G around the world, particularly that it was subsidized by the state so that, so that the, the, the players in the West that were trying to compete had no chance of doing so because the Chinese government would make sure that their costs were you know, prohibitive compared to the Chinese model. Long way of saying that You've got a world that is in some ways bifurcating between U.S. and Western technology. I shouldn't say what U.S. because most of the technology is not American. It's Western technology. The, the, the major 5G firms in the West are not American. Um, and, uh, and, and you're seeing a world that in some ways is bifurcating between American technology and American communication systems and Chinese communication systems. And the American side has said, look, if, you, if you're putting your Chinese stuff in your country – we won't work with you and we won't share information with you. And the Chinese side is saying something similar. So there is a tech bifurcation going on. I think the deglobalization uh, movement is, there. there's evidence of it, but in very specific areas, I don't think we're seeing a deglobalizing world yet. Uh, so I think that we have to be very careful in, in how we categorize these trends because a lot of the things that we've sort of accepted as happening may not actually be happening uh, behind the scenes in the way that, in the way that we're presenting them. All right. Um, we've covered a lot of ground already in our talk here. I've kind of got three uh, sets of closing questions here. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit and okay. ask you to do some different perspective taking. So we talked a little bit about a changing uh, growth model in China overall and some of the concerns of the CCP. I want you to imagine that you were Xi Jinping and you are falling asleep at night, what is the number one thing that you are most worried about? Well, it's probably different this week than it was a few weeks ago. Um, I mean, look, I think, I think right now today that I think she has to be looking at the wherewithal of the global coalition against Russia in terms of kicking, kicking Russia out of the 
finance, global financial system and, and mostly out of SWIFT and, and, uh, and, and, and Russia's economic collapse is a real possibility um, in, in the coming weeks. Um, if you're Xi, this changes your views on a lot of things. It doesn't mean you're not going to invade Taiwan if that's what you decide on down the road. But wow, this was a much more robust response than I think that a anyone, particularly the Chinese, were expecting. And, and they're definitely making the, uh, you know, the, they're making the comparisons to Taiwan and, and what that might mean for them. Uh, but I think overall, I think the problem is, is something that we touched on earlier, which is they have to restructure the system. They have made a decision to at least moderately restructure the system in a way that will be painful. Uh, there will be economic dislocations that will cause the potential for many crises over the next couple of years. But they have to do it because if they don't, then they'll be in trouble. Uh, but I think the question is, is you know, it, at what point, um, at what point, do they really worry? They they've gone too far. I mean, I, I think there's, there's no one who's ever been able to do this transition. And, and at what point will, will she, she, you know, she is, she is now seen as a symbol of China and a symbol of China's economy. I mean, she thought is now in the party constitution. She is very soon going to be president for life. Anything that happens good or bad with China is going to be personally associated with Xi Jinping. So if the Chinese economy uh, goes through severe trauma, um, either because of something that they do or because of global conditions or whatever it might be, she is going to get a lot of the blame, even if people aren't saying this out loud. And that's going to make him have some very sleepless nights going forward. So at what point would you be at a situation where you got to distract, you start a war to distract people? There's a lot of things that can happen there. So, you know, we're, we're in a very tense period. Uh, you know, the, the party's moving forward, they're restructuring the economy, they think they need to do it. But this is not going to be easy. And people who think they're going to have five and a half, six percent beautiful, clean growth or a beautiful, clean, linear slowdown for the next, you know, 20 years, um, not going to happen. All right. That leads into my second question for you here. So what do you think China is? So there, there are a lot of headwinds, right? They've got a bunch of non-productive debt right, in their system. Uh, they've got this exploding kind of population bomb that we talked about where they've got people moving out of the workforce instead of coming back in. What do you think is the best outcome that China can be hoping for here? What do you think in the heads of the central planners, Xi, the PBOC, what are they hoping to do and achieve with their economy, their, their social kind of contract and, and how that's changing over the course of the next 10 years? What does the best case scenario look like? slower, healthier growth, stronger China. I mean, if you look at, I think the pin tweet on top of our Twitter feed uh, is, you know, talks about, you know, I, I, I did a talk on this, the Bloomberg New Economy Forum um, this, this, this past winter. And, uh, you know, the, I think that the way that they would like this to play out is yes, the GDP growth rate will go down, but the economy will become stronger and healthier because, Capital will be put to more productive uses. There won't be as much of a push to, you know, juice growth numbers by 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 putting money into property, tamp down the reckless credit expansion. And yes, you have slower growth, but the China that emerges is a bigger, stronger China on the other side. And it's one that has a, a new mandate, and the party comes out of it looking good because they manage this difficult transition. And they're still going to be, the, you know, a big economy. They're going to be the second biggest economy in the world. They could theoretically be the first, although I think that 
you know, assuming that's going to happen is, 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 is uh, problematic. Uh, but, you know, and, and, and they continue on and they manage this transition and the, the problem, the social problems you know, that everyone, including China, is dealing with in terms of wealth inequality are tamped down because they have moderate enough solutions that maybe aren't great, but they're who in the world has great solutions to dealing with wealth inequality at this point right now. And they get to the next step and they continue on and the party's not blamed for the failings uh, and they, they avoid, you know, going to war as a, uh, as a way of, of, of shifting uh, the, the tension of the population uh, because they manage the transition competently. I think that's what they want. I think that's what they intend to do. I think it is going to be extremely difficult to do that without there being uh, regular crises, many, many crises, not, not Lehman moments, but many crises through, as they push too hard on something or they pull back too hard on something. So there, you know, property is not just going to deflate in a linear, in a linear way, boom, 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 slowly over time. They're going to call the herd. They're already calling the herd and then they release and they make sure that everyone, the sector's okay and there's not a domino effect. Then they call the herd again and then they pull back and you're going to see this sort of roller coaster going forward but they're going to miscalculate along the way no one knows no one knows how to do this this is this is they're breaking new ground and so as they miscalculate um, there will be crises and there'll be the potential where, where, where capital outflows rush out of the country and and um, you know it, it, so there will be challenges ahead but if they manage those challenges I think that that that's the world that China thinks that they're going into right now all right my last question for you here is let's fast forward roughly 30 years right so it's almost it's 2050 um, mm-hmm. How does the relative power imbalance look between China and U.S. at that point? Are we headed towards a world where we're like multipolar, right? Multi, like two global superpowers. Uh, does the U.S. pull way ahead of China? Does China pull way ahead of the U.S.? Overall, what does the global, what does the power differential look like 30 years down the line in between the U.S. and China? Years. So before I, I, I give my opinion, and I'm horribly wrong, I want everyone to recognize <laughs> that 30 years ago it would be 1990, fall the Berlin Wall. Who would have, So, you know, there were some things we would have predicted, but a lot of things we would have gotten wrong. So, so please excuse my, uh, my errant answer. It'll be the best I can do. Um, look, I, from a relative standpoint... You know the U.S. is unchallenged in terms of the fin- in terms of the dollar system and other things. The biggest challenge: the United States' continued hegemony um, or, or, or power in the world is their inability to 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 do smart policy at home, uh, and you know the ability to 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 take control of, of of budgets and and to make sure that we're not overdoing it on the foreign policy side. We're not overdoing it on the the, the trade side that we have uh, that we have valued our alliances which have kept this world in in pe- you know in, in relative peace under Pax Americana since the end of the Second World War um, we have politicians that that more and more are bloviating about using U.S. power for short-term ends and and so the biggest threat to U.S. power are bad American politicians I would say and 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 weak-minded voters who who follow them unquestioningly. Um, but look, the, the China story will be the most interesting one. I, you know, my personal view is that we are seeing a China that's going to peak in the not distant future. Uh, so, you know, let's call that the 2030s. Um, and this creates problems for the world because everyone talks about the problems with a rising China and how it will push to, to have equal weight in the system and, and the Thucydides trap. Okay, that's a potential direction to go. But the other one is a China that because of these demographic headwinds, because of these economic challenges, because of the fact that it doesn't have the ability to blow off steam politically, becomes 
weighed down by these by these issues and 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 essentially peaks in the in the in the early 2030s and to the extent that chinese leaders recognize that that would be happening it moves forward the timeline for aggressive action in a lot of ways whether it's challenging the system in a, in a general way whether it's invading taiwan if you have a situation where the chinese see their window of opportunity closing because maybe because americans get their act together and innovate american innovation ends up creating a larger gap and the chinese state authoritarian system you know is is starts falling behind and then demographics and a slowing economy and 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 other things you know, you have a potential where the, the where the Chinese leadership might say, "Look, we have a window to do important things. We need to do them now. We need to move everything up. We don't have time to wait because ten years from now there will be a, you know, the, the, the calculation from the, from Beijing has always been the longer we wait, the more relative strength we'll have versus the United States. So we should wait. The second that gets flipped on its head, if we do have a peaking China, then all of a sudden the window closes and we have a a, a real short term risk that we could see." outright conflict. Leland, I know we're running low on time here. This has been a fascinating interview. I want to give you a chance. You talked about it a little bit at the beginning, but to plug uh, China Beige Book, if if viewers are interested in finding more about you, the work you do, what is the best way for them to do that? We try to share our stuff as openly as we can. Um, we try to argue against the consensus wisdom on, on issues. We try to be very provocative. You know, we, we're equal opportunity critic of obviously the Chinese approach to things, but also we, 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 were, we, went, we went hard against Trump. We've gone hard against Biden. Um, so we're, we're trying to just tell the truth in a world that doesn't particularly like to hear it. Um, but I think generally speaking, you know, we, we do a lot of, of, of public events and we do a lot of uh, broadcast media and other things. So, you know, Google alerts will, will work too. But in general, I think the Twitter is the way to go and it'll be our contact point that or linkedin that's our contact point with the world all right leland this has been a blast certainly a lot for me to think about um thanks so much for coming on and we'll have to do it again soon michael it was my pleasure thank you all right. cheers all right.